And as the kids are making their way out, if you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. As a springboard to our time in the Word this morning, we're going to use two passages in Acts, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. We have, over the last two weeks, we've uh, been working our way through a three-part answer to one question, that is, what does the church do? And the first answer that we gave to that was that the church gathers. The very term church in the New Testament, ecclesia, is the term for an assembly. The church is an assembly, it's a, it's a congregation. What the church does by definition is it gathers and assembles together. And it gathers and assembles not just so that we can exchange niceties with one another, but as we see in Scripture, the church gathers together under God's Word. Practically speaking, what we want to try to do then here at Edgewood, and, and I would assume all churches would endeavor to do this, is that we said as the church gathers, the church ought to do three things. It ought to speak the Word, it ought to sing the Word, and it ought to see the Word. We'll talk about the seeing the Word next week when we talk about the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The second thing that we said that the church does, what does the church do, is that we grow. And by that, we, didn't, uh, we did not mean to imply that the Scripture, the New Testament, has in mind merely numerical growth, although that is a part of a growing church. We, we hope and pray for that. But that more often than not, the kind of growth that is depicted in the New Testament is a growth in maturity, is a growth in Christ-likeness. And in Ephesians 4, Paul looks at the growth that God intends to happen within a church body and basically says God has designed it in such a way that a church grows as the individual members play their unique parts in the body to do the work of building the body up. So it starts with the Word as the Word is preached and taught. It shapes and equips the members of the body of Christ to do the work of the ministry to the building up of the body. So we gather, we grow, and then today... The last part of this three-part answer, what does the church do? We give. So some of you hear that and you think, oh, we knew it. Here it comes. Got to give. How much do we got to give, Merritt? Uh, tithe, 10%? Yeah, I got that. I got that, all that down. Okay, I'm, I'm going I'm to set you at ease right now as a way uh, by saying that the kind of giving that, that I want us to consider and look at here, which we'll see in a moment, is not merely material or monetary giving. But when we say that one of the things that the church does, one of the defining characteristics of what the church does is that it gives, we're talking about a disposition or a spirit of giving that sort of filters or trickles in to all of life. Material, immaterial, physical, spiritual. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But if you're in the book of Acts, look at Acts chapter 2, verses 43 and through 45. Luke gives us in Acts in uh, several places as he records the, the birth and the growth of the church as the Word of God continues to spread. He gives little summary statements that sort of encapsulate uh, 
what is happening in the church or what characterizes the church at this particular point in time in history. And he does that in a couple early places in the second chapter and in the fourth chapter. And I want to draw our attention to that to to take note of one of the things that Luke points out that was so unique about the church in its early days. So in Acts chapter 2, start at verse 43, Luke says that everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And then flip over just another page or two to chapter 4, and look at what Luke says in 432 through 35. He gives another little brief summary statement. And he says this And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Give us, Father, we ask now, insight into what it is that you have revealed through the pages of Scripture. Help us to see how what we find here ultimately points us to the life-giving power of Jesus Christ through your Holy Spirit. Father, cultivate and develop in this church a spirit of giving, both in what we own and possess, both in what we have to give emotionally or mentally or spiritually, and may it be done in such a way that people are able to look at us and to see evidence of the fact that you are among us, and we ask this for your glory, for the exaltation of Jesus Christ, your Son, and for a demonstration of the power of your Spirit in our midst. Amen. So two two little summary statements that we looked at in Acts. And in both cases, one of the things that Luke points out, along with the fact that the apostles are doing things like miracles and preaching and teaching, Luke makes a point to draw attention to the fact that one of the defining characteristics, one of the unique qualities of the church at its inception was that the church as a whole was known to be a group of people who were giving. Of all the things that Luke could say that characterized the church, why would he draw attention to the fact that they gave? Why giving? Why not talk about how much they loved each other? Why not talk about how much they prayed together or they studied together? I mean, he he does that too, don't get me wrong. But why the attention to giving? Let me say up front, before we start to to look at some particular points that we want to make, I think the simplest answer that we can give for that, the reason that Luke would draw attention to this is because Luke really is not doing anything that is particularly unique 
The truth of the matter is, is that the Christian faith is premised on the idea of giving. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave. If our faith is premised on the idea that we have a giving God who gives to us what we need for life and godliness, He gives to us eternal life, how in the world would it be possible for God's people who profess and claim Him to be their God, that He is remaking them into His image, how can we not also then be people who are characterized as giving people? So in the, in the run-up to this morning, I had a brilliant idea and said, I wonder, I'll just, right, I'll get on the, the fancy computer and I'll start doing word searches, right? We'll do the ditto me and the grace languages and terms and stuff like that. Where, where is in Scripture, where does it say, particularly in the New Testament, because the New Testament is all about the church, right? Where does it talk about giving in the New Testament? In both positive and negative ways, some of it being directly related to our topic or not, I ended up with like 18 pages, single-spaced, of verses that has the concept of giving. Now, not all giving is giving that we want to emulate, right? Sometimes you can give someone a bad report or you can give someone a... right. But just as an example, Mark chapter 10. Don't try to write down all these references. I'm about to drown you. Okay, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, he tells them, You pray, give us, Father, give us this day our daily bread, expecting that God is going to give. Luke eleven nine. 9, Jesus says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. He says a little bit later in eleven thirteen, If you then, Jesus speaking to his disciples, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Luke 12, 32, Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has chosen gladly, not begrudgingly, your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. John 1.12, but as many as received Him, to Him He gave the right to become children of God. John 3.34, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure, without limitations. John 10, 28, I give eternal life to them. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. These are just selections. I'm not even reading you all the things that are on here. Like, Acts 
14, 17, Paul, preaching to a bunch of unbelieving pagans, says that God did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God gives that too. Acts 17, 25, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Romans 5, 5, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Romans 15, 5, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant for you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 5, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Galatians 1, 4, talking about Christ, who gave himself for our sins. 2 Thessalonians 2.16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace continue to do so. 1 Timothy 2.6, Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. On and on and on and on until we get even to the last book in the New Testament, Revelation, and we hear things like this, that it was given to her, given to the church, given to the saints to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Those are given to us. In Revelation 21, 6, capping off all that God has done to right and restore everything, then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. If you're here this morning because you have been united to Christ, you are here united to Christ because God gave you His Son. He gave you His Spirit. He gives to you everything that we need for life and godliness. He gives us life and breath. Every split second that passes by is something that God has given to us. There is no minute of any day where we are not basking in the overflowing goodness of God that he gives without limitation, without hesitancy, and without begrudgingness. How? How can anyone who has come to see and know that be stingy? And let it be said up front, as we begin to look a little bit more closely at some specific passages that deal with giving, that whereas one of the most tangible ways that we give, or one of the most visible ways that we give, is when we give material things, right? When we give money, or we give clothes, or possession, right? Something physical that you can touch and feel. While that is one of the most easy ways to see God's people giving, that is not the only kind of giving that is pictured or envisioned in the New Testament. There is clearly in the New Testament 
the idea that we ought to be people who give both materially and immaterially, who give to meet physical needs and give to meet spiritual needs, all right? At the risk of boring you to tears, I only put two or three references to give you here, all right? So listen to what Jesus says and then to something that Paul says. Jesus says in Matthew 10, he's sending his disciples out to preach, to invite people to take part in the kingdom, and Jesus says this, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You hear all that? All of that are spiritual things, spiritually oriented at the root. After saying, you do all that, he, he tacks on to the end of that this statement, freely you received, freely give. Part of what God intends for his people, his the followers of Jesus Christ to do is to give spiritual riches that we are enjoying in Christ, that we share them with others. Paul then comes along, and he makes a statement like this in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Reflecting on his time with the Thessalonians, he says this, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become very dear to us. And in one of the classic New Testament passages on giving, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where Paul is appealing to the Corinthian Christians to finish the collection for needy saints in Jerusalem, Paul says that when the Macedonian Christians gave money to meet physical needs for Christians that they had never met. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 8, 5, that they gave, they gave this way, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. All right, here's the reason that I point this out. Most of us are not as well-rounded as we like to think we are. I put myself at the front of that line, okay? Now, that, that works both ways. We are not as well-rounded as we think we are. We are not gifted in all areas the way that we like to think that we are. But by the same token, precisely because we are not gifted in the same ways, some of our strengths or our tendencies are stronger in some areas than it is for others. So when it comes to the idea of giving, here's what you need to hear. Some of you seated here this morning, you have no trouble at all in giving money. Either because you feel like you have more than what you need, or because you're just not particularly attached to it, God has given you a unique grace to where you love to give to meet material needs. And you will, you will fork out money hand over fist anytime there's an opportunity. Someone just has to suggest making an offering, and you're already reaching for your card, or you're reaching for the, uh, the Venmo app or whatever it is. Right? It is Venmo, right? Yeah, Zelle or something. Okay, yeah. I'm hip. I'm cool, right? All, all you kids out there. Right? You're grabbing your phone. You're doing all of that. It, it doesn't bother you in the least. However, you find it extremely difficult to give 10 minutes of your time.
you find it very challenging, very difficult to give yourself to another person. All right? When we're going through these passages here shortly and we're talking about giving, all right, you need to think in terms of giving in areas that are weak areas for you. And, and by the same token, flipping that around, some of you will volunteer your time and your energy. You will work yourself to the bone for someone else, giving your time and energy to another person, even if it means coming to the detriment of your own sanity and physical health. You will just pour yourself out to no end. Most of the time, those people are called mothers. But there are Christian men who do that as well. You will pour yourself out until you don't have a single ounce of energy to give, but you will cling like grim death to every penny you have in your account. You do not put things out on loan. You do not borrow. You do not share books. I don't know who that would be. All right, but, but you get the idea. The giving that we're talking about here is a giving that is meant to be pervasive in the life of a church, that a congregation, right, that we as a people together demonstrate the gratitude that we have in all that we have received, all that God has given to us by trying to do in some small way something of the same. And so I would encourage you, as we, as we go through the, these, these next three points, as we look at some of these passages, think primarily in terms of ways in which God needs to continue to work on you and refine you to make you more like Christ. Because Christ came and He gave everything. Being rich, He made Himself poor, Paul says. Jesus would wake up. Before the sun rose, we're told multiple times in the Gospels, while it was still dark, he would go to a place in private to pray because that was the only time he got any solitude and he would commune with the Father. And then when the sun rose and the rooster crowed and everybody started waking up, Jesus did not have any personal private time. His entire day, all of his life, all of his energy were people taking what he was willing to give. Jesus not only gave of himself, he not only gave of his life, he gave of material benefits and advantages that he could have. I don't even have a home. I don't even have a place to lay my head. And God wants to make his children followers of Jesus Christ so that they look more like that. So three points that we want to try to make. Number one, that we give as God gives grace. We give as God gives grace. Number two, we give as an expression of our unity. And you, you might could even pencil in, if you, if you have notes or if you're taking notes, you could even say, we give as an expression of our love and unity. 
Those, those two things go hand in hand. And then number three, we give ultimately as an expression of our faith. So number one, we give as God gives His grace. Two passages that I want to look at back to back. The first one is in Acts 4. The second one is in 2 Corinthians 8. So if you have your Bible with you, turn to Acts 4. Hold your place there. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 because we're going to read one and then flip over to the other. Now, we already read this section in Acts 4, so we're going to narrow our focus a little bit. Look in Acts chapter 4 at verses 33 and 34. Acts 4, 33, Luke says that with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and then he says, an abundant grace was upon them all, or great grace was upon them all, meaning not just the apostles, but on all of the Christians, great grace was on them. And then look, notice, depending on your, your English translation, hopefully you have a for there, F-O-R, that shows you that what he's about to say in verse 34 in some way explains or gives sense to what he means when he says, great grace was on them all. For, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. They were giving to meet needs. Luke says, makes a categorical statement, makes a claim, God's grace had been poured out on them, was on them in a significant way. Prove it, Luke. He says, okay, they gave. And then listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at verse 1 and then verse 6. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 8, 1. Now, brothers, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. What do you mean, Paul? How do you make known the grace of God? And he says in verse 2, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. How does Paul demonstrate that the Macedonian Christians were being moved and compelled to act by God's grace. He says they gave generously, insanely generously. And then he comes down a little bit further and he turns his attention to the Corinthians because he wants them. They are far wealthier than the Macedonian Christians. They had already pledged to give to meet the needs of Jerusalem Christians. And so Paul says then in 2 Corinthians 8, 6, So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this grace as well. 
Now, in context, what Paul means there when he says, we sent Titus to complete this grace, he means this grace work, this grace giving. So for Paul, Paul says it's because God's grace was at work in the Philippians and the other surrounding churches in the Macedonian region, it was because of God's grace in them that they gave generously and sacrificially to meet the needs of their fellow brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters that they had in fact not even met. They did not know. And then Paul likens the work that God is going to do on the Corinthians, they're giving to a work of grace. So you take what Luke says in Acts 4, that great grace was on the church for they were meeting needs, they were giving. And you couple that with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 6, that it's by God's grace that His people were and are giving and you start to see that, that giving for God's people is far, far more than some sort of legal requirement. The reason that God's people give, the reason that we ought to expect that God's people would give is because God graciously changes their hearts so that rather than wanting to take and receive, they want to give. A church that is not giving, a church that is not generous of their resources, of their time, of their energy, of their own lives, is a church that brings into doubt the effective work of God's grace in their heart and mind. Do you, you get that? If what marked the heart and mind of Christ was that He was willing to give everything, even to His own life, how can we say that we have been united to Him and not be willing to give of ourselves? It doesn't add up. But listen, don't fall into the trap, right? You, you hear this, and if, if you're like me, you know the areas that you're deficient in, right? You, you know the areas that you, where you're selfish, whether that's in material ways or immaterial ways, right? And so it's easy to hear this come across as, well, you better be giving. Why aren't you giving more? You better get to it right? That self-condemnation that comes, it just pounds on, and so you guilt Christians into giving. That's not what Scripture does. That's not what we want to do here at Edgewood. We don't want to guilt people into giving. Rather, we want to say, because of all of the riches that you have from God through Christ by His Holy Spirit, you are free to give. If you know that all that you need for life and godliness has already been given to you, you already have it, you don't have to be selfish, you don't have to be 
fighting through life for spiritual scraps that is a zero-sum game. Well, if I don't keep this for myself and I let it go to another person, well, that means less for me. That's not the way that it works. There is no end to what God gives. And if there's no end to what God gives to His people, there ought not be an end to what we're willing to give to one another. If you know and are convinced that because of what God has done in Christ, that we will be co-heirs with Christ in the age to come, that all that is will be given to us, you will not look at your money in this present time in the same way. What, what do we have to hold on to? One, all of this is passing away anyway. Right? You have a better chance of holding water in your fist than you do holding on to the wealth and the riches of this world. But the unbelievable promises of God in Jesus Christ is that while all of this is passing away, there is another age, there is another life to come that does not pass away, and everything in that age and in that life is given to God's people without reservation, and you will rule and reign over everything that is given to Christ. Throw it away. doesn't mean anything. Be wise. Be considerate of how you use your resources, of how you use your time, your energy. It's not even our time and our energy, right? Even that. Thick-headed people. Even that. It's not my time. But give because of the fact that you are convinced that the grace of God that has been given to you so far excels and surpasses anything that you could create for yourself that it would be foolish to try to cling and grasp. Basically, what we're trying to say is that the true Christian mindset when it comes to giving, whether in material ways or immaterial ways, is that we ought to look at giving as being more about a response than a requirement. So if you were to come and ask, how much do I need to give to the church in my monthly income or my annual income? Right? I know what Merritt's going to say. Got to give 10%. Got to give the tithe. No. No. If you came and you asked, how much do I have to give? Well, one, I would say, already you framed the question the wrong way. What do you mean, have to give? How much do you get to give? Is that what you mean? Okay, let's, let's answer that question. All right, but so, how much do I get to give? Wink, wink. And then you would turn and you would say, well, how much have you been given? 
go and give like that. So has God given you 2% of his riches? If he has, give 2%. Has he given you 10% of his riches? If he has, give 10%. Has he given more than 10%? Maybe think about giving more than 10%. Not out of requirement, not out of legal obligation, But as God works on your heart and mind and you rejoice in the riches that are yours, give liberally. And I would tack on one other thing. Give liberally of your time, of yourself, of your money, of your resources. But just as important as giving liberally, give faithfully. Right? Because listen, we don't know how long the Lord is going to have us here. We do know, though, that just like our Savior, so long as we are laboring on this earth, we are laboring to give. So however liberal or generous or freely you're going to give, at this time or in that opportunity, just know this this is what I want my life to be shaped by. I want to be characterized by faithful giving. And let the Lord lead and move you. Do it as an expression of the grace that you already enjoy. Number two, we give as an expression of our love and our unity. Go back to Acts chapter 2. Look in verses 44 and 45. Acts 2, 44, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. That that statement, they were together, that's not just a statement about proximity. They were in the same room, right? They were together in the sense that they were tied to one another. They were together. They were in harmony. They were in communion. They were in community with one another. And they had all things in common. And then over in chapter 4, verse 32, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Here's another reason why God's people ought to give, because we love each other. Under normal circumstances, you do not have to persuade a mother to make sacrifices for her children. Under normal circumstances, you don't have to persuade a father to make sacrifices for his children. They just do it. Why? Well, I know that if I do this for 20 years, Junior here has a bright future. 
and he stands to earn three times what I earn right now, and so this is really an investment for my future. I'm going to give to Junior so that Junior is going to give to me. That's not the way that parents think. At least they ought not to. No, they give because they understand that this is my flesh and blood. They are tied, they are attached to me, and I am attached to them. And because of that attachment, because of that love and affection, they give freely, even to the point of hurt and pain and sacrifice. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Listen to what, how Paul gets at this very idea when he's talking to the Corinthians again. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. I am not speaking this as a command, in other words, encouraging you to give, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Why give, Corinthians? Give to show that you love. Verse 24, 2 Corinthians 8, 24. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Do it because, give because you love your brothers and sisters and you want to show them that you love them. And here we are once again. The kind of giving that is done in love can't be minimized or compartmentalized to, well, I will love you to the point that I will give to meet material needs, but I'm not necessarily going to love you to the point to where I will give to your emotional needs. Right? So, I as a father, if I enter into a relationship with my kids and I say, okay, listen, kids, here's the way it's going to work. I, I love you more than you can possibly know. And to demonstrate my love to you, I will, I will cover the expenses of all of your food, all of your clothing, your room and board, right? You won't have to pay a dime. And every month I pay bills. Every month I buy food. Every month I buy clothes. And then one of the kids comes and they say, hey, Dad, you want to go out and throw the ball? No, I'm sorry, that wasn't part of the arrangement. I provide for your physical needs, right? I give a lot to meet your physical needs. Just back off a little bit, right? If a, if a father talked that way to his children, you would, at, let's put it politely, you would have a very low view of that man. Wait, you're telling me that your relationship as a father only pertains to giving to meet their material needs, but you don't do anything else? You have no relational investment in them? You have no desire or no inclination to spend time with them, to give of your mind and your energy and your teaching and your counsel to your kids? You're just going to throw money at them? Or the other way around? Right? I'll play all the games in the world that you want from sunup to sundown. It'll be me and you. But listen, when you get hungry, good luck with all that. Hope you find something to eat. Me and mom are going out to grab a bite. We'll see you later. Right? 
You know intuitively, instinctively, that the deeper the love and the deeper the tie that you have with an individual, the more you give and the more that you give willingly and hopefully with joy. Because you just, you want what is best for them. That's what God wants to cultivate in a local church body, that we see needs and hurts and areas that need to be filled in, whether it's with childcare, whether it's with after-school tutoring, whether it's with facilities that need to be repaired, whether it's with leading Bible studies or giving someone a listening ear or anything like that. There is always something to give, and God has brought us here so that we can give those things to one another and enjoy doing it the whole time. Number three, not only do we give as an expression of God's grace and we give as He gives us continued grace, not only do we give as an expression of our love and our unity with one another, but we also give as an expression of our faith. Long term, This is where we come in and we say, this type of giving, this type of spirit and disposition is something that is meant to characterize God's people for the long haul. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 through 11. And God is able to make all all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in all things, you may have an abundance for literally all good deeds. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Go back up to verse 8, 9-8. Paul triples and quadruples the all language. Easier to see in the Greek than it is in the English because it sounds redundant and repetitive, and we try to smooth it out, all right? But he makes it redundant and repetitive to prove a point. So here's the stiff, burdensome, redundant way that it might come across. 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that at all times, having all sufficiency in all things, you may have an abundance for all good works as it is written. And he goes on. You, you get what Paul is driving at there? And listen, he does this on the heels of talking about giving to meet a material need, but he turns the corner in chapter 9 in this little section as a way to say, now listen, this giving to meet physical needs, starvation to meet the needs of a famine in Judea, this is just a microcosm. This is one part of giving in general. This is the more general, all-inclusive principle. And the point that Paul is making is, listen, here's one of the reasons why you give. 
You give because you know and you expect that everything that God puts in your place, every need that God gives you to meet, he's going to give you what you need to give to that need. So you wake up in the morning and you say, I don't know if I can give another minute of my time to these insane children who do not give me a minute's peace. Right. You can't. God can. And God will give to you all that you need at all times so that you can meet all needs because he's the source of your giving. And he will give to you all that you need to meet the material needs of others simply, faithfully, because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He shakes the nations and loose change falls out of their pockets. That's biblical, by the way. I can't remember the reference. But he shakes the nations so that the money falls to his people. The problem oftentimes with our giving is that we feel as if what we give of ourselves or of our resources, we feel like it's a zero-sum game, that what I give can't be gotten back. Or I look at my stores, my supplies, my resources, and I say, listen, I can't give here because I still have to give to this later on in the day. God's not asking us to give according to our resources. We're bankrupt people. We have no resources. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you brag as if you got it? Everything that we have has been given to us. And God promises, God guarantees that because He cannot be exhausted, that He will give according to the calling that He has placed upon us to meet the needs of the people around us, whether that's our flesh and blood family or our spiritual family here at the church. And He is going to provide so that we can continue to give. And all of it is to the praise of His glory. I love Edgewood. One of the things I love about Edgewood is that Edgewood has always been, in so many different ways, has always been a giving church. My hope is, is that in looking at this idea that giving ought to characterize God's people and it ought to characterize a local church, that to the extent that you have been faithful, that you have been taking joy and delight in giving as a way to express your gratitude to God, as a way to become more like Christ, that you would be encouraged to continue to give, that you wouldn't grow weary in good works. And that for some of us, if there are areas in which we have been a little stingy, or where our arms have not reached out quite as far as what they ought to to give, that we would consider all of the riches that have been given to us and say, how can I possibly hold back? What has not been given to me that I can't give to someone else? And that the more that that spirit of giving 
freely, generously comes, the more that we will see and know the fact that God is at work in our midst, shaping and cultivating human hearts, to say these people are not normal, regular people. These are people who have been remade and reborn. Let's pray. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. We believe that you are able to make all things come to us so that we will be equipped for all good works at all times. We believe that you have given to us riches that we cannot even begin to to imagine. We cannot begin to know the full extent of them. But it's our unbelief. It's how easily distracted we are especially in the, I don't know, just the, the chaos of this life, drawing us away from our simple childlike faith that you will provide and that you provide for us so that we can in turn share and provide with others. I thank you for the way that you have worked so faithfully in the life of Edgewood over the years to create a people who loves to give. And I pray that as we continue to go through, especially even in this holiday season, that whether it's with uh, offerings for foreign missions or giving to the general fund or to one another to meet various needs, that whether materially or immaterially, that you would so move on our hearts that you would give us the ability to see more clearly the glory that is ours in Christ, that we would be compelled to give freely and without regret. Thank you for how you have given to us. Overwhelm us with the eternal goodness of your nature in the gift of your Son and your Holy Spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And I'm going to invite you to stand as we close in giving glory to God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit as we close. done for you on the cross.
And would you think upon the Holy Spirit who ever intercedes for us as we pray to the Lord. Amen. Spirit, we Miss. God bless.